Well, good morning. It's good to be with you guys. We're five days away from Christmas. It is December 20th, five days. Uh, I think I should start with a little confession, if, if that's okay. Confession. The Oliveries this year became that family. That family that starts singing Christmas songs way too early. We haven't done it before. This is the first year. But probably, honestly, this is embarrassing, maybe like almost two months, maybe, but somewhere between a month and two months ago, I walk in my house after teaching and lots of energy, lots of commotion as there always is. But my kids are like, marching around the house. One of them is beating a drum. My kids are one and a half and three, Zoe and Theo. I think Theo is trying, he has this drum around his neck and Zoe has some jingle bells and jingle bells is blasting and it might be November, it might still be October. And I was like, I'm okay with this. And I walk into the kitchen and I see Kara. Um, she's, had, she's a smile on her face, but it's that kind of smile that says, yeah, this is like the 78th time I've heard jingle bells today. But she was smiling because she is a woman of great endurance, and she's great. So we have been spending a lot of time at Christmas, but here's another thing. Zoe's only three, so she doesn't quite understand time and the calendar 100% yet. So she still thinks that, like, kind of everything is coming tomorrow. So she's like, Christmas is tomorrow. She said that, like, a month ago. So Christmas is tomorrow. Well, not, yeah, not quite, uh, but we're, we're getting there. So it's been a, a long wonderful month or two of anticipating Christmas for us, of waiting, of waiting for Christmas to come. And as we're in the Advent season, that's what Advent is all about. Advent is about waiting for Christmas, waiting for that day where we celebrate the birth of Jesus, that Jesus has come, that God has come for us in Christ to give us life and, and to forgive us, to give us hope. But Advent there's a little bit of a tension to it, right? Because we're, we're looking forward to Christmas, which celebrates that God has already come for us. But Advent is also a time of waiting, right? It's also a time of longing and of hoping for the, the second coming of Jesus. Because we live between the times. We live in this already not yet reality where God has already come for us in Christ. He's come for us. His promises they came to pass. He made his, the yes of his promises are Jesus. He's come for us. But everything hasn't been made right. Everything hasn't been made well and made new just yet. And so Advent is both a time of, of delighting in and celebrating the fact that Jesus has come for us, but in hoping and longing for his second coming. And so we, we love this time of year, like John said, to both celebrate and and look back, but also look forward. We're going through Isaiah, and we're looking at these passages in Isaiah, these beautiful prophetic depictions of the coming king. And, and, and we see that they, like us, that, that sort of month before Christmas, are waiting, are waiting, are waiting for, for a coming day, but they waited for a very long time. And we see a beautiful passage. We're in Isaiah 11. If you've been memorizing texts with uh, this text with us, uh, we've been working through this text for the last month or so. 
And we're finally going to work through it together this morning, and it's beautiful. It gives us a beautiful picture of what God has done for us on Christmas, but what God is ultimately going to do for us in Jesus when he comes back. And it's this beautiful picture of, of the kingdom. And so there's two points I want to focus on this morning. You'll notice that the passage basically is two clear breaks. There's a sort of a paragraph and then another paragraph. And I think that first section shows us Jesus, the promised king, the promised king. And I think the second paragraph shows us the peaceful kingdom, Jesus's peaceful kingdom. So Jesus, the promised king, and Jesus's peaceful kingdom. So let's read Isaiah 11, these first few verses. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So this is, this is what Isaiah is doing. He's saying, I want to talk about the coming king, the anointed Messiah. This is what he's going to be like. Imagine a stump that looks as though it is dead, and out of it there's this little green branch coming off of it. This little shoot of life coming off of it. It's interesting to us, maybe even odd to us, that God would communicate uh, his very Messiah, God himself become human to save us in that kind of image. But if we take a step back and look at the whole sort of sweeping story of Scripture, we realize that God communicates his presence and his grace, his redemption through this sort of image of a tree pretty regularly. The very, the very beginning of the story envisions a garden where a tree of life is for, for the life of the world, the life of humanity. But humanity rebels how? By eating of the fruit of a tree. But God doesn't give up on us. God still meets us. God comes to Moses. How does he reveal himself to Moses? Through a burning tree, through a burning bush. And then as we walk through the scriptures, not only the law, but even the writings, the Psalms open up. The first Psalm opens up with this sort of messianic hint. Blessed is the man. This man, who is like a tree planted by streams of water. And then the prophets talk about not only Israel as great trees, but Israel's Messiah as a tree. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and what does he say in John 15? I am the true vine, and you are the branches. If you abide in me, you'll live. And then we get to the very end of the story. We get all the way to Revelation 22. We get to the new heavens and the new earth. And right in that city, there is the tree of life again. And its leaves are for the healing of the nations. God is consistently communicating, one, his presence and his grace through very ordinary means, through his world that he has made, and specifically through this image of the tree. And so Isaiah says, the Messiah is going to come, and he will be like a shoot out of the stump of Jesse. Well, this is interesting that he says Jesse, right? We might expect him to say David, a stump, the stump of David. Why? Because David was the king. So why, why Jesse, who is David's father? Why out of the stump of Jesse? I think there's a couple possibilities, and I think they show us a couple things about Jesus. In fact, I think Isaiah 11, 1 through 5 shows us these three kind of main things about the promised king. And the first the first is his humble roots. The second is his heavenly character, and the third is his holy, redemptive justice. But first is his humble roots. I think, I think the connection to Jesse draws our minds back to where Jesse's from, where David 
where this sort of dynastic kingdom began, and it was in this little town, this little Bethlehem, this little backcountry, unexpected village. And that's where Jesus has come from. Jesus, like David, and even more than David, is a humble, unexpected king. We say, come thou long expected. Yes, he was promised, but the way he came was so unexpected. We might expect him to come down like we were told he's going to come down the second time, on the clouds and with power and with glory, but, but in a manger is how he came. In the town that everybody forgot about. And he came born of a virgin. He came as a helpless baby because he is a humble king. He's a lowly king. He is the shoot from the stump of Jesse. He, he has humble roots, but he also has royal roots because just like David came from the stump of Jesse, so does Jesus because Jesus is the true king. He is the true and better David. And in fact, God told David that. In 2 Samuel 7, David comes to the Lord and wants to build him a temple, and the Lord says, I'm going to build your house. I'm going to build your family. I'm going to build your line and your kingdom. There will come one from your line who will sit on your throne, and his reign will will last forever. And I will be to him as a father, and he will be to me as a son. So he had already promised David that there is going to be a shoot from the stump of Jesse, And we know, friends, that that is Jesus. Jesus is the lowly king who has come from the stump of Jesse. He has humble roots, but he also has a heavenly character. Look, these verses are, are beautiful. Verse two, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Jesus, when he starts his public ministry, first in his baptism, the spirit descends on him. And then, after a time in the wilderness of temptation, he comes, and his first public teaching in Luke 4, he opens the scroll to Isaiah, and what, is it, what does it say? It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And he's saying, I am the one. I am the one that Isaiah was, was promising, was telling you all about. I am the one on whom the Spirit will be given, will, be, will descend. And so he has this, uh, this divine uh, investment of, of the Spirit. He, he has God from God, and there's, there's, there's so much rich theology going on here. This is the Son of God become human. He's the one who by his very nature uh, it lives by the Spirit of Yahweh. And so what does that look like? These next few verses work out a little bit of what that looks like, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. His way of operating in the world, his operating system, his way of seeing all things is truly according to the way God sees the world wise. Not by the worldly vision of wisdom that's in many ways caved in upon self. But no, he sees things the way God sees them. Perfect wisdom, perfect understanding. And from that wisdom and from that understanding, he works. And so we see that in the second line, the the spirit of counsel and might. This king has perfect wisdom and understanding from above because he is from above. And then his counsel, his word, his might, his works are in perfect agreement, a perfect expression of what he knows to be true, of what he understands about reality. 
And so we see this in the life of Jesus. We see that Jesus is anointed and, 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 and has the very spirit of Yahweh resting on him. And we see that in his counsel, in his very words, he speaks like a very different king. We see that in the Sermon on the Mount. We see that in his words and the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We see that in his teachings. We also see that in his works, that he is a good king who has power, not just to say some things, but to get things done by his very word, and what he does reflects perfectly God's kingdom, what God would have done in the world. And so he heals, and he raises up, and he forgives sins. And so all of this is rooted, I think, in this last line, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His, his wisdom and his counsel and his might are resourced and resourced in and draw from his, his knowledge of God the Father. A deep, intimate, personal knowledge. In his fear of the Lord, that he is oriented by a God-centered view of reality. He fears God, not man. He fears God, not others. He treasures God as the greatest, most glorious foundation and, and center of all things in the whole world. To fear the Lord is to be in awe of who God is, to see things rightly. In the same way that we might fear others, which means that we give the attention of our minds and the affections of our hearts for them, and we kind of bend our very life towards them. To fear the Lord is to recognize how great He is and to bend our whole lives towards Him. But, but to, see, to fear Him is to see how great He is. But look at verse 3. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He delights in the fear of the Lord. He delights in the very fear of the Lord. I think that means, one, he delights ultimately that, that the fear of the Lord would cover the earth like waters cover the seas, that we would all fear the Lord, that, the, that everyone would recognize God as God and not recognize all these other little things as God. But his whole life is marked by a delight in and a knowledge of and a fear of the Lord. That's, that's the king that Isaiah is promising. He's humble roots. He has a heavenly character because what he's describing here is not just a really good guy, but God become human. God in the flesh. That's the kind of king. And then third, his holy and redemptive justice. Verse three describes kind of how we judge, how we bring about justice, how we operate. In contrast to verse four and five, how God operates. Verse three, the second half. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is a picture of justice. Christmas is a celebration that God has come humbly as the perfect king, marked by wisdom and might and knowledge and fear and delight in the Lord. But it's also a celebration of justice, a recognition that 
God has come to do what is right and what is good. But there's two forms of this justice, and they're completely in contrast to the way we do justice. How do we do justice? How do we judge? We judge in a very limited way. We're limited by our, 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 our finitude. We're so finite by our time and our space and our biases and our culture, and even just like the smaller things than that. We judge by how we're feeling that day or a word that somebody said to us. Or, or how we think somebody might even align politically and things like that. We judge in, by this really limited set of criteria. And usually what it looks like is we like those people who are best for us, who look like us, who sound like us, who say and do things that are best for us. But here's Jesus, who's not partial, who's not taking bribes, who is not swayed by moments of, of emotion or, or, or who, who bears infinitely reproach and the comments and the words that the world has for him for their sake, completely a different kind of justice, a completely different kind of judgment than, than we have. And so he judges by the very will and knowledge of God. God is his standard, not what, Paul, what, what uh, Pastor Pete says a lot, the kingdom of, of self as we operate. He operates very differently than us. And so then what does that look like? What does his justice look like? I think there's two dimensions here, two sides of his justice. It is restorative justice, and it's retributive justice. Restorative, making things right and binding up and lifting up those who are hurting and are broken and are mistreated, and it's retributive. It's treating, it's, it's punishing rightly those evils and those sins and those people in rebellion against his kingdom. So first, this restorative justice. Look at this. He will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. That doesn't mean that he's going to come and condemn them. That, that judging is not, not crushing them. It's actually the opposite. It's not putting them down. It's, it's lifting them up. In fact, this is, this is the, the theme of, this rhymes with, with what the psalmists are consistently saying. Psalm 72, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your peoples with righteousness and the poor with justice. And then he kind of explains this. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people, the hills and righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. In Psalm 82, he says, how long will you just, sorry, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? This is, this is, this is condemnation on the people of God. Give justice, as God does, to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So this king, this shoot, this branch from, from Jesse, who has the very spirit of God, who delights in the fear of the Lord, is going to do justice for the lowly. He's going to bind them up. He's going to bear them. He's going to make things right for them. But does he do that at a distance? Does Christmas celebrate that God has worked for the lowly of the earth at a distance? No. It celebrates that God has come so, so near to us that he was born in lowliness himself, that he chose a life of poverty, that he bore even 
our sin, even our death. God from God bearing our death for us because he's come so low for us. He deals justice as, as a very near Savior. But his justice is not just restorative. It is also retributive. And so just as Jesus has come and will come to do justice for the poor, to, to lift them up, he will also bring down the proud. He will humble them. And this, this, this depiction is, is startling. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. This text is saying there is going to come a day when he comes back and by his word, he is going to speak and by that word, he is going to judge the whole world. Because for God, who is infinite in power, his speech is his action. His word is his working in the world. So when he says, let there be light, there is light. And when Jesus says to the storm, peace be still, it is still. When he says, Lazarus come out, Lazarus comes out. And when he says, your sins are forgiven, they are forgiven. Because he has the power to heal the body and forgive our sins. And so when he comes and he says, stop, the world will stop. And every inch, every ounce of injustice in every human heart, in every corner of the world, will stop. Because Martin Luther King teaches us that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, and he will put out injustice everywhere. And so we hope for that. We, we hope in our just king who both restores those who are lowly and he, he puts away all evil. He crushes the wicked. And so that might sound like bad news to you. That's me. That, that should sound like bad news to us because I'm not perfect. In fact, I'm a rebel. I am the wicked one. I am the one whose, whose, whose very nature is turned towards itself in sin, who seeks to promote self above, above others. Left to my own, that's who I am. I think there's a gospel word for us from this, and it's this, that while one day Jesus is going to come and by the breath of his lips he's going to kill the wicked, he has already come for us. And he has freely given up the very breath of his lips, the breath in his lungs, and taken the place of the wicked. He has taken your place to do justice, to justify you, to declare you right before God himself, to forgive all of your sins. As, as the just and lowly, loving, and merciful, holy king. He can do that, and he delights in doing that. So would you come to him today? Would, would the first word of Christmas be to you that Christ has come for you, to, for you to give him your life so he can give you his? And so he is the just king. He has humble roots. He has a heavenly character, but he also is, is marked by a holy justice that's both restorative and retributive. And then there's this break. That's what Jesus, that's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus is going to do. And then we come to the second half, the peaceful kingdom. What will come about 
one day as a result of what Jesus has done. What we hope in, what we trust in, what we as God's people long for and believe with all our hearts, he will do this. What is it? Well, let's read this slowly. This might be an odd way of of, uh, depicting the new heavens and the new earth, this coming kingdom, the the way the world will be one day. And if you're memorizing this, you might have had this experience where you're like trying, there's all these animals. If you're working with us and memorizing this or meditating on this, you're like, there are a lot of animals here. I'm going to mix up. Is it the bear here? Is it the calf here? I'm not sure. What I want to do is I want to read this slowly. And I want you to imagine these things. These are so unreal. In fact, I told the, the first service, at the low point of my prep work for this, I watched a YouTube video or two or nine. Like, I watched a couple YouTube videos of, of unusual animal pairings. I don't know if you've seen these. Where, like, animals you would not expect to be friends are, like, best friends. Uh, like, lions and wolves and, I'm trying to remember some of them, like, a dog and an orangutan. It's wonderful. I don't know if that's what this text is getting at. I think in some sense, maybe that's a little hint of, you know, this is what the world would be like, but those, there's something even better going on here in, uh, in Isaiah 11 than those YouTube videos. Let me read this. Imagine in your head the, this, these images. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The young and the, the, sorry, the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And then this one, this one gets me. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What's going on here? What What is Isaiah trying to show us through this depiction of these animals living together, dwelling together in harmony? Well, I want to say a couple things. I think it's first important for us to, to understand even um, how, how Isaiah is making sense of, of sort of the chronology, the story of redemption. John Piper, uh, one time I heard him at a, at a conference talk where he, I think, helped me make some sense of this. He says, imagine a mountain range that you see from really far away. It uh, looks like one big, massive mountain range, but as you get closer, you realize it's actually two mountain ranges uh, next to each other, but you didn't know that at a distance, and he says the prophets in many ways are looking forward to the day of the Lord, and it's as though they see two mountain ranges as one, so they're describing both of those things at the same time, and we don't know how to parse out exactly what they're describing, but in some sense, they're just saying this is what's going to happen when, when God comes for us. And so sometimes they're describing the first coming of Jesus. The first mountain range is that first coming of Jesus. The second mountain range is when Jesus comes back for us. We, as those people living in the valley between those times, are are keenly aware 
that there is a time between when he has come for us and when he will come again to put all things right. But for Isaiah, he, he at least in Isaiah 11, paints this picture where both of those run together really beautifully, where some of these we can say, yes, we've seen that come to pass, and that is being worked out as, as God has come for us, lived, died, and been raised from the dead. But some of these things, especially verse 6 and following, where we think that has not yet come to pass. Yes, the king has come, but I'm not, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna let Theo play with cobras. It's not gonna happen yet. Because that, that hasn't come to pass. But we hope for the day when it will. And so he's communicating to us, I think, a picture of flourishing where, where not just human relationships, but certainly human relationships, but the entire created order is healed and made right. It should evoke in us an, an imagination of, of Eden, of, of, of the, the true and better and greater second Eden come because of what, what God has done through the true and better Adam. And so, a couple, uh, I think, important points for us is this. One, we hope for a day where in our relationships, and in our communities, and even between nations, and even in the way animals and the whole created order operate, that there will be peace, that there will not be enmity, that there will not be strife, that there will not be the pushing down of others to build up self, there will not be murder and horror. And as we, as we read this text, not only five days before Christmas, but during 2020, a long year. It's been a long year. Christmas 2019 feels like 10 years ago to me, and it wasn't even a year ago. We're living in an, in, in an age during a pandemic, and it's brought about loneliness and loss, and it's brought about grief, and this is a good word for us, that there will come a day when, when COVID-19, when loneliness, when social distancing will be no more. But there will be peace, and we will dwell with one another. In fact, let me, let me, read, let me read for you how the scriptures describe this day, at least in part, in, in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, hear this, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away with his own hand every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more because the death of Jesus will play itself out perfectly and his death will kill all death. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Behold, I'm making all things new. Isaiah 11 is pointing us to a world where all things are made new, and who makes them new? It is King Jesus. Who is at the center of that kingdom? It is King Jesus. As our light, as our temple, as our very life. And so, I don't think that God would have us say during Advent, yes, Jesus has come, but he hasn't come again yet, and so we are just going to sit in despair and twiddle our thumbs until he decides to come back. I don't think so. I think God has shown us ultimately first in Christ's first coming, but even in the church, that God is at work bringing about that day. And, and Peter says in, in 2 Peter 3.12, he says, as we await and hasten the coming of the day of the Lord, that there's something about how we live as God's people in the wor- world that is waiting, knowing that God is going to do this, but that hastens it by our preaching, by our witness, by our faithfulness, by our love, by our extending even the peace of the kingdom now to one another. To say, yes, we are ambassadors. There's this foreign country, this country that we will go to one day, but we are citizens of that country living now as ambassadors of that peace, speaking it and displaying it in our actions, ambassadors of his kingdom of peace. And I think more than anything, Jesus has in his very life shown us that that kingdom has started coming that that world has started to break in. Think about Jesus' miracles. Jesus' miracles are not just him flexing his muscles. They're saying, this is what the kingdom will be like, and he's bringing the kingdom. The kingdom is very near. It has come in Christ. So when he heals the blind, he is saying, one day there will be no blindness, and all will see. When he cleanses the leper, he says, one day there will be no leprosy and we will be healed. When he raises Lazarus, he is saying, one day, because of my resurrection, my death in your place and resurrection, we will live and we will not die. And so we hope for that day knowing that, that it has already broken in in the first coming of Jesus and, it, and we are hastening as we wait that the coming of the day of the Lord. So, so I, I want to ask one last question and go, if I can, just to the next verse, verse 10. I want to ask the question, how do we get into that kingdom? How do we get to be the citizens of that kingdom? Well, look at verse 10. This verse has really, really struck me in the last uh, couple days of reading this. Notice every word, in that day, the day of the Lord, the root of Jesse. I had to read this 12 times, I think, before it stood out to me. The root of Jesse, not the shoot of Jesse, not the branch of Jesse, the root of Jesse. Because this one who's going to come is not just the shoot of Jesse, but the root of Jesse. Not just the fulfillment of of, of the promise to Jesse and to promise of the whole world, but his very source. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who comes before and the one who comes after. He is the one who promised and makes good on the promise. 
He's the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal or as a banner for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the, rem- the remnant, the remains of his people from all over the world, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. What is Isaiah getting at? Well, there's a lot he's getting at, but I think one of the implications of that is this. Jesus Christ has come as the signal of God, as the banner of God, who's not just come to say, y'all lost. He's come to say, yes, sin and death and all the enemies of God have lost, but come to me. And not just Israel, not just Judah, but all the peoples of the earth. And we see this come to fruition in, in Jesus. That the door is swung wide open, and he says, come. All, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, of every tribe and every tongue and of every nation, come to me, because I'm the door into life. I'm the way and the truth and the life. And so Jesus is, is, is the announcement and the presence of the missionary God coming to welcome us into his kingdom. And so, as, so as, we, as we celebrate on Christmas, both that he has come and that he's going to come, we should ask the question, how do I get to be his. How do I get to be a citizen in that kingdom? Well, it is by coming to Jesus, the King, knowing that his, his arms are, are wide open to you. Coming to him and casting yourself on him, the one who has laid himself down for you. Christmas is about the gospel. We might think that Christmas is about presence and time together, and all sorts of other good things, and it's about those things too, but it's ultimately about the gospel, that God has come for us, and God will come for us again. And so I do want to encourage you to be in the spirit of Christmas, but I want to encourage you to allow Isaiah 11 to shape your understanding of the spirit of Christmas, that the spirit of Christmas is humility, is lowliness, is a fear of the Lord. It's justice for the lowly, and it's hope for that one day. It's a a, a productive hope, a hope that hastens. And so you might be sad this Christmas, or worse, you might be lonely, even experiencing grief, you might think that my prospects this Christmas are the bleakest ever. I want to encourage you with the gospel this morning, that God has come for you in Jesus, and he will come again. And and he, he can be, and he is with you, as a lowly king of humble roots, that the branch from Jesse can bear fruit even now in our lives. And so let me pray for us. As we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper together, let me pray for us. Our Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread 
and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.